So it was super important, I think, for us to start by saying, what does it mean to us? When we say we're committed to this, when we say we prioritize this work, what does that actually mean? Um, and so defining it for us. And so we started there and defining, defining it as we want to create a company that reflects the communities we are a part of. One thing that we love to say at SGO is the work is not the workshop or the work is not the program. We do have a DEI committee, which I'm really happy to see that A, they're interested and it's voluntary. This is the very first company I've ever been a part of where the committee is consulted on various topics across the company. You can't drive change alone. You can't have one employee who is a true believer and expect them to carry this work. Everybody. I'm Felicia. And I'm Rachel. And welcome to the SGO podcast, the She Geeks Out podcast. This season is unlike any that we put out so far. What does the future of work look like when we're thinking about diversity and inclusivity and equity? And what does it look like for different groups of people? We got to interview so many incredible people. You'll also be hearing some little snippets and interjections from our facilitation team. You'll get their perspectives on what DEI really looks like in the workplace from a practical, actionable standpoint. So let's go. When organizations are building out their initiatives around DEI, some common mistakes that I see happen are when an organization is thinking about it as a check-the-box approach. The effort or the initiative is just there to say, we did something, or it's just there because of some legality, or we had something happen, so we have to say something, or we have to do something, but we don't really care about this. And that's the biggest mistake you can make, because DEI work is lifelong work, it's deep work, and it's work that is most impactful when it's built in from as early as possible in every aspect of an organization. This week, we're taking notes from leaders who have successfully brought intentional, fully integrated DEI programs into their organizations. From setting up employee resource groups or committees to bringing in a formal training program, we're taking you step-by-step through what it takes to move from just talking about changing to actually making an impact. We're going to start talking to C.A. Webb, former president of the Kendall Square Association, about how she worked with She Geeks Out to build the organization's new DEI program, which ended up becoming Innovation Drives Inclusion. Four and a half years ago, I started running the Kendall Square Association. It is a consortium of innovation-driven companies based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, MIT, of course, anchoring Kendall Square. This one square mile has hundreds and hundreds of tech and life science companies, research institutions, and is known globally as the the definitive epicenter of innovation, you know, the densest square mile of innovation-driven organizations anywhere in the world. So the platform that I, I wound up running for four and a half years is really charged with bringing this community together to drive connectivity and to take action on the issues of import to ensure that, you know, Kendall Square can remain generation to generation, the the center of global innovation. So when I started talking with the board of directors about leading the organization, we quickly started talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
as a prerequisite for any global innovation center, right? Like if we're going to be the place that solves the biggest problems of the day, we must be the place that can attract the brightest minds from wherever they happen to come from globally. And so we knew we had to ready ourselves even more than we already were to welcome people in to make sure our organizations were truly dynamic and resilient enough in, in centering DEI in order to attract the, the best and brightest. So, of course, this organization was only eight years old at the time. And, and while I think they dabbled in, in some DEI work, they didn't yet have a terribly um, strong point of view and definitely didn't have a full-blown strategy about how they were going to embark on that work. So we started out with really a learning journey. And that learning journey started with, well, a number of things. We brought the Boston Globe team in for a big annual meeting with our members. It was the Pulitzer-nominated team that had done a nine-part series on racism in Boston. We then followed that up with dozens of conversations across workplaces in Kendall Square, talking with our members, you know, everyone from the most junior to the most senior about how racism impacted their lives at work and at home and on the sidewalks and the implications for Kendall Square. We added that, created a learning journey with 17 senior leaders across Kendall who met for a couple of hours every month for a year to dig into a curriculum designed by an MIT professor named Caesar McDowell. And um, together, you know, we did such intense work together. But out of that came this recognition that there was really a need within the organizations in Kendall for a different approach to DEI education, that there's a lot happening internally in companies, but not enough opportunities to get executives from multiple companies together in a room learning together. And frankly, you know, cross-pollinating ideas, learning from one another's mistakes, failures, and successes. And so that was sort of the germ of the idea that we started with. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I called SGO and I said, hey, we've been in conversation for a little while about a program. And it's clear that all the ideas that we had were based in getting people in a room together to do some learning. That seems to be out the window right now. How might we rethink this? Is there a way to do this work meaningfully, virtually? And that's those were the early days of Hatching Inclusion Drives Innovation with, with the two of you and your team. Reaching out to you, certainly there was um, self-interest. I was looking to create value for our members, seize on this moment, not be immobilized and frozen by the moment. Ringing in my ears was, you know, my many years of my career in startups and in venture capital. And, you know, often the best companies get started when the market dips and when, you know, corporate America's flailing, talent leaves and they go do the risky thing and they they start things. I knew it was a moment back in March 2020 to act, not to freeze. One of our first fledgling thoughts as we were noticing that there was white space, if you will, for executive education around diversity, equity, and inclusion, the first insight was that Often this stuff happens within the four walls of a company, but not enough of it seemed to be happening where executives from multiple companies could come together 
and learn from one another's successes and mistakes. But we also notice that a lot of this education happens on a one-off basis. You know, it's, it's one afternoon. It's a couple of hours. And our feeling is for anyone, but certainly adult learners who often are being challenged to look at history differently, to rethink some, you know, deeply embedded assumptions, to begin working through in uh, developing really a new frame, new lens on many aspects of the world and people, we really felt like that work needed to unfold over a span of time. And so we started playing with this idea of, you know, what if there was a course that could bring people from multiple companies into a room together where they'd have multiple touch points to begin learning, sink into the learning, synthesize the learning, really you know, have healthy, an atmosphere of healthy psychological safety where they could, you know, dialogue in meaningful ways, not just passively take in information, but really uh, sit with, with colleagues from, from their own companies and others to hash this stuff out and walk away from a learning experience, not just, we hope, with resolve to want to be anti-racist in the world, but really resolved to go back to work and do work differently. So from the outset, we always sought for it to be more than another program for executives, but to be a program that enabled these people to go back into their companies and redraft policy, look at protocols, and really begin to unpack what's happening inside their companies. And of those things, what is at odds with anti-racist practice? What is in sync with anti-racist practice? And just bring a really different sort of critical lens and um, degree of efficacy to driving change at work. Everyone just brought such an amazing, earnest experience to the learning and practice and that's invaluable, you know, to have people outside your company who you trust that much that you could go back and say, you know, I tried to do this thing and this thing was a mess or, you know, I've gotten myself in hot water or we're stuck. And, you know, hopefully we all have trusted relationships inside our companies to, to parse those things. But sometimes you really do need an outside perspective and someone who's just in a slightly different culture and, and reality to help move you. I would love to hear if you've got outside of sort of like those moments of connection and, and problem solving, did you find that the companies that you were working with, you know, sort of came back and really shared some impact, very specific impact related to the program? Yeah, it's such a good question. It, the question of impact. And it's one where, you know, you know me, Rachel and Felicia, I'm deeply impatient <laughs> as a person. And this work challenged me to hold on to that impatience because we need urgency driving this. You know, I was talking to a friend the other day, a friend who's Black, and he was, you know, we were just both like really sort of like painfully laughing about how many of our white friends have used the last two years to read a bunch of books about anti-racism. They can reel off all the titles and tell you all the synopses. But, you know, when you really say, so how are you putting that into practice? There can be, you know, often a, a long silence. And I think that candidly, it's all over the, the board. You know, we're finding some folks dig into the work and they immediately know where to go inside their companies. You know, they go instigate new and different conversations. Recruiting is always first. That's where everyone always starts is, you know, let's go talk to people in recruiting and talk about 
where we're recruiting, how we're recruiting. Is it, are we sending the right signals to attract truly diverse groups? And that's really exciting and matters. But then the next question is, wait a minute, what else is happening inside our four walls as a as an organization? And are we actually ready? Are we culturally competent to retain the diverse people that we want to attract in? And so that's, again, where we often saw folks go back to existing systems, you know, things like their employee resource groups, ERGs, to say, okay, you know, we've been doing some good stuff, but now that we've done this curriculum, we see opportunities to be much sharper, much more, you know, aspirational in the ways we're working with employees and empowering them to really push the C-suite, get, you know, different kinds of resources devoted to this work, and so on and so forth. So really, I think it's early days to say, where's the impact? But what I can say is all of the research of our alumni as they came out of the program and then repeat research we've done with them has shown their confidence, their sense of efficacy, their commitment to follow through, their willingness to frankly like put themselves on the line within their companies and really become organizational strategists and change makers was pretty profound. One last question around sort of your experience. I'd love to know if you made any specific changes, whether it's you know, going to our 5P model that we introduced in that program, policy, people, programs, et cetera, et cetera, within the KSA specifically after you all went through that first iteration? So we, so, you know, a key element of Inclusion Drives Innovation is developing an action plan as an actual physical document that you work through with others from your company who are attending the program. And um, over the four iterations of Inclusion Drives Innovation, we've approached it in different ways. Ultimately, we found that it felt really important to weave in from the very earliest days of the program. So it's a tool that everyone's attuned to and they understand the importance of having real ideas committed to paper, you know, real policies they want to start taking a look at either dismantling or changing or writing and creating within their organizations. So at the KSA, we also, you know, we worked a plan. We had an action plan. I truly believe this work, it has to be ongoing work. It can't be episodic. I think this work needs to be constantly refreshed. I think we have to continue re-inspiring one another in the work because there are so many opportunities to feel, (laughs) frankly, dismayed and defeated. So it really does take, I think, having an inner core of people committed to it who keep rallying one another, keep inspiring one another, but also keep pressing one another and saying, wait a minute, are we going far enough? Are we going fast enough? Are we pushing hard enough? You know, what is our aspiration here, really? I mean, if we're going to do this work, let's be best in class. Let's be best in industry. Let's be a a new standard, right? I mean, I think that's ideally what, what any of us would like to find inside our companies. Action planning is literally the act of thinking about what comes next in my mind. So... A lot of times when we do trainings or when we do DEI work, we think about them in the moment. So we're 
spending a couple hours talking about a topic. We are spending some time doing some work. But one thing that we love to say at SGO is the work is not the workshop or the work is not the program. And that's so important in my mind because what I like to tell people is the real work happens once we leave, (laughs) once we step away, once we close down the Zoom. And sometimes people don't want to hear that because it's hard and it does take work. And it's not something that can be fixed by spending two hours talking to somebody else. But the real work happens in an ongoing process. And it happens typically after someone like SGO is not necessarily holding your hand or as deeply involved in that process. So action planning can be literally like a roadmap for you to think about how to continue to do the work once your training or your consulting gig or your conversation has concluded. One way that is a really simple yet effective way of action planning is to think about what am I going to stop doing based off of the training or the conversation or the work that I've been doing with SGO or others? What am I going to continue to do? And what am I going to start doing? So some variation of stop, start, continue. And I like that because it's really simple, but it's very powerful because we want to make sure that, okay, we realized there are areas of our business or of our work that we shouldn't be doing because it's not very equitable or it's not inclusive. So let's stop doing that. Then we can think, oh, you know what? We just identified some areas that we need to work into, whether that's short-term or long-term. So we're going to start to do some additional work beyond the constraints of this training. And then my favorite piece of that is a continue piece because I think that a lot of times, especially as human beings, we tend to have negativity bias. So we look towards what is not working? What do we have to do still? What are the issues or the challenges at hand? Where have we fallen down along the way? It's a really natural thing for us to fall into that line of thinking. But I love the continue piece because it's it's giving us a space to really push us to identify what are the good things that we've already been doing that we want to continue and keep supporting. Because that's important too. And especially because this can be long-term work and because it's hard work, we want to give ourselves those wins along the way. So I think part of the action planning is to also make sure that we don't lose any of that good work and that we you know, keep it going. Here's SGO staff, DEI programs and training manager, Fatima Denka, with more thoughts on doing the work. So when I often facilitate workshops, there is a moment where we go through guidelines and frameworks. And one of the things I say in the beginning, during and after workshops are or is (laughs) the work is not the workshop. Right. And the reason why the work is not the workshop has become such a important phrase for me to name in my practice and something that guides me in my work is because it's true. I've been doing facilitation work close to a decade now, and I was practicing my facilitation skills years back with an amazing facilitator. And I remember her saying something along the lines of the work is not the workshop. And I was just like, this is brilliant. (laughs) Right. And also important to name Because when I see articles that say things like DEI trainings or unconscious bias trainings don't work, but people are spending millions of dollars on it, I want to just simply respond and say, that's because the work is not the workshop. It is not the workshop that's the issue. 
It is the foundation within an organization that's the issue. It is the fact that the organization has not taken the appropriate steps to make sure that before, during, and after the workshop, they have a plan. They have a strategic plan to make sure that their DEI goals, their vision, and whatever else they're working for will adequately come to pass, right? And so to think that a facilitator or a workshop will change a workplace overnight or will dismantle any form of oppressive culture is naive, right? And quite frank, it's false. Those of us who are doing this work know that workshops are important because they plant a seed for the workplace. And I often say that seed is not nourished by the DEI consultant or facilitator, right? We don't do the workshop and also fertilize the dirt or bring the sun or bring the water. A lot of that work has to happen with all of the employees within an organization, right? And so if we come in and do a workshop and folks don't have a plan or there's some foundation wrong with the quote unquote dirt that we didn't know about, The plant that doesn't grow is not on us, right? And so it's really important for people to think about that whenever they're doing DEI work and making sure that a workshop is part of a longer term strategy versus the only thing that they're doing in their DEI journey. Here's Jason Fuchs, Senior Director of Learning and Development at Essex Property and Trust to talk about taking a DEI leadership committee to the next level. I, like I said, I joined Essex at the, in the beginning of 2020, right before COVID. And, you know, the old Brianna Taylor stuff was going on and, and the rioting. And we're all familiar with that. So it's interesting. We had actually, we at Essex had been thinking about doing, uh, having a DEI leadership committee as far back as mid-2019. We had been thinking about it before a lot of the stuff took place in the news. And it just so happened that we actually officially launched our DEI leadership committee when those events took place. So we were we were sort of like, our associates think we're just doing this now because of what's going on in the news. And that wasn't really the case. I'm sure there's some out there who thought that, but that wasn't our genesis. But for me, being new to the company at that time, when we first started talking about DEI and having this leadership committee, I had reached out to my manager, uh, who's the head of HR, sort of in Zoom on a side chat and said, hey, if we're forming this, I want to be a part of this. Again, not knowing what I've been getting myself into, but I felt I could put a lens on some things. And being new, I wanted to be involved as much as possible. So my boss, and, and she's she's very, she's great. She was right away, sure, we want you to be part of this. Well, everybody else is at the senior leadership level, if you will. But the good thing, refreshing thing is they're all open to ideas and, and trying new things. DEI, from what I've gotten to understand, Felicia and Rachel, that it wasn't, well, we had some basic trainings we used to do. It wasn't really a staple of our of our company or something we really focused on. And I think the um, the goal of this committee is to put that focus and engage employees because we are pretty, when you look at our numbers, when we look at our annual numbers and our you know, CSR report, if you will, we have a pretty good balance of things. We have a good story to tell and we don't always, we hadn't always done that too well. We're still working on that, but there's a lot to share. We're no, by no means experts, but we're still learning as we're going down the, down the train tracks, if you will. I remember when we first started working together and we were like, one hour is not going to get us a lot. And you were like, but that's right. all people are willing to commit to. And it's been really cool to see the evolution of people really sort of doubling down and realizing that this work takes time and effort. And it means that it's prioritizing over other things. 
I would love to hear how you've managed to make that happen, that adjustment happen over the years. Well, yeah. So by the way, I remember clearly our first kind of conversations and me being an L&D person at heart, I'm like, now is not a long enough time to really get any meaningful work done. Then I think when I think back about it, that hour is probably good for us because it, we're still new in a DEI space organization. This is a nice appetizer. So what I was able to do, and, and so my peers was able to see, hey, who's attending? What, what's, what's in the chat box? But when, when Felicia's talking or you know Rachel's talking or whoever's talking, what's going on in the chat box? Is there energy there? Uh, is it sticking? So no slight to you guys. And you guys are usually facilitating. I'm watching the chat to see what's going on just so I can get a gauge on things, right? So we're now to the point now, I think, Rachel and Felicia, that People are seeing that Essex is devoting time and effort and money towards this uh, initiative. We want to be engaging with it. And, and I'm surprised, pleasantly surprised, when we're having coffee talks, which are company-wide at our company, like, like sort of like um, town halls, if you will. People are wanting more. They're reaching out to me directly saying, hey, I love that thing that She Geeks Out did. Can we do it again? And I think what you're going to see, Felicia and Rachel, I'm so glad, by the way, I'm so glad I found you guys. You guys are the perfect partner in this. So whatever that's worth, that's got to be out there as well. But it's how do we now take it to the next level? I think this year with your help, Rachel, we've peeled the onion back a little bit and we're getting a more focus on allyship and and unconscious bias and things like that. And now the challenge is going to be what we do for next year. Well, how do we take it even further? And, And the good thing is when we did these smaller classes, I wasn't sure what the intent I was nervous. I was like, are people going to sign up? I was really, really nervous. I was really, really nervous. They've been selling out. And we never have classes sell out. We have the two classes coming up on, on um, allyship. Uh, so I'm able to see that, hey, there is a need. There's a want for it. You know, I'll be honest, one of the challenges we've had, and that's this year, too, too far off topic, but I think it's important to introduce or at least talk to is not everybody's a fan of DEI. You know, in organizations, I see that in the chats also. Why are we focusing on this and not this? Why, why do they get a special this, that? You can imagine all the things you see in there. But I want to hear that too. I want to hear the good, bad, and the ugly to know what the pulse of the organization is. But I, I think we're heading to a good place now. I think I've got, I think we've managed to get that buy-in from leadership, Rachel. So now in the future, we want to do a two-hour class or a three-hour class. Or what I would love to do, and we'll talk about it, is our leadership committee, the VPs and above, they should be going through their own bespoke kind of just for them as leaders. How do they translate the message down through the organization and why it's important for them to be involved? So that's like something I wanted to put with you guys as well. But um, yeah, it was a struggle early on. You know, I was really frustrated for that, get that one hour. But I think is a blessing in disguise that allowed me to sort of say, okay, there's interest here. I could tell my manager a story and say, hey, look, Sadarshan, it's sold out. People are wanting to hear more, but here's what they're saying. It was a very easy decision for her to say, yeah, let's do more and more and more. So as much as you guys can keep giving us great ideas and great uh, plans, I see this partnership lasting for a very long time. It's not something that we're afraid to talk about anymore. I think now it's expected to be talked about. It's a free conversation. People are sharing their opinions and their thoughts and their ideas more than they have, at least in my experience so far, more than they were in the past. And I think that's directly attributed to what We've been able to partner with you guys on it and get those messages out. We've actually created a DEI action team that spawned off of of the uh, leadership team because six people can't do all the work. It takes a lot of production and background to get these things moving. So we have we had an opportunity to engage associates at all levels, maybe at some more and more junior levels in the company, 
to who have a voice and have a passion about this and invite them in and say, hey, these are our initiatives for the year. This is what we're trying to do. Can you help us? What ideas do you have? What are we missing? So we have a committee of about 15 or so action team members, DI action team members that help us, like myself and the other leadership uh, members of the DEI team, to actually um, put a lot of our ideas in motion to the point now where I would say they're more of the leaders than, than some of the other folks in, in, the, on the, in the DEI space. I'm saying it in a good way because the ultimate goal is to engage our employees, give them a voice. That's one of the things, we, one of the main things we wanted to do. And being able to leverage them and bring them involved in the fold in this sense is great. It's great for organizational health. They feel better about what they're doing. They feel like they're making a difference. And that's not just that's, that's, that's cheap talk. That's legitimate stuff. They're making a difference. They're getting to talk on our, our town halls monthly, on our coffee talks. We're able to create videos and put on our intranet that you know highlight Women's History Month or Black History Month or AAPI awareness. So they're doing all these things that they never did before and it's given them a voice and that makes them feel good about coming to work every day about what Essex is doing and you can't put a price on that that's just great for an organization and as you guys know that spreads more and more somebody could be in a meeting talking about hey i'm part of the action team oh how do i get involved in that oh i'm glad you asked here's how you do it so it's sort of snowballing i think we didn't have that you know a year ago six months ago that wasn't even a thought but now we're seeing how it's growing and how the employees are responding to our efforts is that we're getting more dollars towards it and more resources towards it. it makes me feel good because when we first started we were doing it you know we were we were getting you guys money but we were just trying to steal from somewhere to budget you know because <laughs> we didn't really budget for it but now i think going 2023 is it's very apparent this is a long-term thing for essex how do we put money around it more money and all those kind of things so but everything that we partner with you guys on has led to this i'm happy to report that it's heading the right direction i don't see the steam slowing down. I think it's, it's picking up nothing else. But again, our journey is far from over. I think you guys will continue to educate us. We'll continue to educate ourselves, obviously, along the way, and we'll meet in the middle somewhere. But um, work's not done. I, I want to say it's just getting started. Let's talk more about the role of formal trainings and workshops. Here's Dr. Erica Powell. Yeah, so I come to this work with so much love for what I think is this shift in consciousness that we're having. When we talk about DEI, like I know folks say, oh, well, you know, we're talking about DEI or, you know, some folks are adding in the justice. But when I facilitate a class or an experience, I always say that each of my classes is a flight because we go higher and we go wider in our consciousness. I never know where we might go because part of the biggest challenge of doing this work is you don't know where folks are when they enter into your unconscious bias room or into your microaggressions or your allyship or your if they are bold and brave enough to stay in the anti-racism conversation. I don't know where they're going. So or I don't know what they're coming in with. And so part of why I say we go take a flight is because I really do feel like our consciousness is expanding in this conversation around DEI, particularly at work, because so much happens in the workplace. Work 
can either move you up and through certain ladders, if you will, if you're looking at it from that hierarchical model, or it can open different doors for you. So that's where I get that idea of, all right, we're going to go. I like to call it. If you've been in a class with me, you will know I'll say, all right, when we look at the agenda, I'll say, okay, so like a captain on the plane, these are the terrains, these are the lands that we will be passing over today. (laughs) Are there any stops folks would like to take? (laughs) If you have them, send it to me in chat. (laughs) I'm curious about how you've maybe historically and currently viewed bias at work because you mentioned you sort of came into this work through the L&D channel, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that your thoughts have shifted over time. So what does that conversation look like for you when you started out given to where you are now? Yeah, I remember when I first started doing like L&D, the first class that anyone will ask a L&D person is, can you do a class on unconscious bias? We want a class, we want you to create a class on unconscious bias. That is the letter A in the DEI alphabet. (laughs) You don't pass go until you've taken that class. When I first started out, I remember seeing a lot of stuff that I would say was very like, And no disrespect to the cog science folks, but it was very like, okay, well, these are our different types of biases. And I remember thinking, no one is going to memorize all 175 different types of biases unless you have that ability and enough respect to those who have that type of ability. What does this mean for, as a lot of my career has been situated in business, how do I make this relatable to my CEOs, to my directors, to my senior managers? Like, what does this really mean? They're they're not going to sit down and learn all 175 types of bias. The other thing that I think has shifted for me as I, I think about what does bias mean at work is not just like, oh, do we know that it's an unconscious prejudiced against someone else, but how does it really show up in our day-to-day conversations when we are recruiting, when we're just in our daily, like, hey, we're getting on a Zoom meeting. Hey, Erica, you look like you're losing a little weight. You look good. Or, oh, let me see the back of your, you know, let me see that art. Oh, that's really interesting. So what I like to do is to get people to see how is it showing up And how does it make people feel when bias is present? So I I feel like the evolution of myself as a DEI practitioner, because that could be a whole podcast on the evolution of a DEI practitioner. Now I'm like, no, let's really talk about what is it like to have bias in a conversation? What does it feel like so that we can make different choices and be aware of it? I know there's a lot of, um, there's so much content out there around unconscious bias. And some of it is like a Pac-Man, you know, like, oh, spot the bias. Get it, get it, get it. <laughs> I hope y'all like the sound effects. I'm very animated. <laughs> but for me, it's more than attack the bias. It's look inward and see where that bias is within you. And how is that affecting your outcomes? And how is that affecting your relationships that you make in the workplace, regardless of what level you're at, senior, executive, or an individual contributor? Well, yeah. I mean, I I love this because I think it really speaks to sort of that 
that tension and you, you spoke to this around, you know, we're unlearning so much. And I think there's a lot, especially in the corporate world or in the, the working world, there's a lot of white supremacy characteristics that we have so deeply ingrained that we don't even realize it. Right. Like I know for me, perfectionism is something I'm trying to move away from, not because I don't want to do good work, but because I don't want to be constricted by this ideal. But I think the other layer that a lot of practitioners have to deal with, whether you're in-house or coming in as an outside vendor, is undoing past traumas, whether that's personal or even undoing the work of past other practitioners who are not approaching this work in the same way that you are, Erica, or that that we are on the STO team. And has that come up for you? And, and what challenges have you seen when you're coming into a space where it's not their first rodeo and there's a lot of of history there that you're also dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. I, I usually like to say, cause you never, I call it the whammy. <laughs> Remember that game show? No whammy, no whammy, no whammy. <laughs> you never know when the whammy is going to show up. <laughs> like you don't know when you're going to hit that particular iceberg. And Part of what I love about the She Geeks Out approach in general and and part of what you all have have taught me and I think your classes are really oriented towards is to that growth mindset. So when we look at what guidelines govern our session today, if we're in a training or if we're in a, a consulting engagement, we have to be willing to unlearn things that won't get us to the next level. So a lot of my phrasing when I hit that whammy <laughs> of uh, what was it? a few weeks ago, I was teaching a class and, and a white male said to me, stayed after, he said, you know, I love the messaging. And wh- what do you say to the white men who say they don't want to, it wasn't their fault that slavery happened, or it wasn't their fault that all of these atrocities happened. And I thought to myself, well, there's the whammy, because I definitely, part of being a good DEI practitioner is you got to know where your triggers are. Like, that's an ouch spot for me of like, I'm living with the effects of what happened. And so part of how I navigated that was I said to the individual, yeah, you're absolutely right. They didn't create that originally. And the next level of unlearning and learning is to really think about how are they perpetuating that? Because this work, I believe in my heart of hearts, it's soul level mindset consciousness work. So in as much as it's so, think of it in the same way that you would think of it as mindfulness work. There is no done. You are always learning and unlearning and growing and you hit a certain level. So the message to that, those folks are, yeah, now start to think about how you can make things better now that you know, now that you have that nugget of information, now that you have that awareness, what will you do moving forward? for yourself, for the people that you interact with. And if you can get in your hot tub time machine and fast forward seven generations from now, this moment in time starts with you. That's why I think um, I love 
seems unrelated, but in my mind, y'all know how I'd be connecting stuff. That's why that land acknowledgement is so important at the beginning of a session, because this is that point in time that we talk about what happened and we acknowledge people's agency and power and choice to show up in a hour and a half webinar, two hour class, whatever it is. And it's by their presence, by their being open to something new that they can actually shift and be something better for those who come after us. Or those, if you can't, like I said, if you can't get in your hot tub time machine and go seven generations from now, so that you can make it better for the people that you work with. Every organization is going to need to define what diversity, equity, inclusion, or DEI means to them. Here's Amaya Arobrana, Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at EasyCater. We started by saying, what does DEI mean to us? And because as much of a hot topic, it was finally getting the attention it deserved, but it didn't mean that everybody was going about it in the same way or that it meant the same thing to everyone. And I think that there were definitely, and I think it spanned the entire spectrum of companies who really took like, were like, okay, we need to do better and actually tried to do better to like performative and people who were like, what do we need to say? Who, what do we need to donate? And then can we just go on and like pretend this didn't happen? And so it was super important, I think, for us to start by saying, what does it mean to us? When we say we're committed to this, when we say we prioritize this work, what does that actually mean? So defining it for us. And so we started there, defining it as we want to create a company that reflects the communities we are a part of. First, we are nationwide. We have now that we're a remote hybrid, we have hybrid, we have employees all over the, the country. The United States is the great melting pot. We're an incredibly diverse country. So if we want to reflect these communities, we also need to be incredibly diverse. Starting there and saying, okay, great, that's one piece of it. But these three pillars, diversity, equity, and inclusion, you have to have them all. They all have to be prioritized and happening together to be successful. Otherwise, you'll be filling a leaky bucket, meaning you'll be bringing people on who don't feel included, who don't feel like they have access to opportunities or to be able to succeed, and they're going to leave. So it's holistic work and that it all has to happen together. It has to be prioritized together. So we said, hey, okay, that's, if we want to reflect these communities, we need to get like working on that because we don't currently. We also want to create that environment where people can be exactly who they are and they, they're not afraid to be that person. They're not worried that they won't be taken seriously, respected, looked at as professional given a chance to be promoted, paid as much as they should be if they don't put on their I'm at work now hat. I don't want you to have, we don't want you to have multiple hats. I want you to be the person you are when you come to work. We want that from our people. And so that's the environment working to create. And then looking at equity in all of our systems. Most of us, I don't want to say a blanket statement. Most of us want to get paid, right? (laughs) We are going to work because we want to be paid for it. And as much as we love our jobs, if we stopped getting paid, we're probably not gonna keep going. (laughs) So I think that what's super important is to say, okay, it's one thing to have a diverse population. It's another thing to make sure that everybody feels included and accepted and that they can be exactly who they are. But if we do not have equitable systems, if their performance is not evaluated equitably, if they're not given chances to promote and to grow and to develop, and they're not given access to stretch projects, they're not going to stay. So all of, we have to address all of these things. 
at the same time, we have to look at all of them. How do these all fit together? And what are we doing in each of these to be the most diverse, the most inclusive, and the most equitable company we can? So we started by saying, okay, that's what DEI means to us. Now, what do we do about it? So we got a dedicated budget. And one of the things that we had heard loud and clear and that we had been wanting to move forward with is that we need to have opportunities for continued individual learning. So DEI is not something that I do in a silo. It's not something that my team does. It's something everybody does and everybody has to be a part of. I cannot change the way you think. I can't force you to learn. I can't do any of it. The only person who can do that is you. Each of us individually have to choose to be open. We have to choose to question, to challenge, to think critically, to be okay being wrong all of us, right? Like that's, and so the best thing I can do is set up an environment where you feel safe doing that and then give you the opportunities to do it. So that's what we focused on. We focused on, okay, how can we make it clear to people that we support you in this journey? It's a learning journey, right? And everybody is starting in a different place. We support you wherever you are, and we are going to give you opportunities to learn, to grow, to see. And that was where the training through you all came into play. And it was very important, though, because I knew what a massive move for us this was. There are unique challenges that different organizations will face based on size, age, location, budget, and resources. Here's Elisa Campos-Prater talking about approaching efforts creatively. I guess the challenges I've seen come up, especially when it's from like a startup perspective versus like a larger enterprise, like established organization is terms of resources, right? Like understanding that maybe startups are not able to have the resources to fund certain programs, workshops. And I think we can get creative though, right? Like I feel like Scott's is still fairly small. We're not a startup, so to speak, but we're growing. And, but again, fairly small compared to other companies I've worked with. And so we, we think creatively around like the DEI efforts. So one of the amazing things that they do is we do have a DEI committee that like it actually consists of various people, which I'm really happy to see that a, they're interested and it's voluntary. And then This is the very first company I've ever been a part of where the committee is consulted on various topics across the company, right? Like these are decisions across how the copy in certain newsletters or anything that we're sending out to our members and just being mindful if that copy is inclusive, if there's anything that's popping out that we obviously may have not like noticed and just want to avoid anything discriminatory. Like that's essentially comes through the DEI committee. We review it. And then give our thumbs up and or thumbs down. Like sometimes we're like, no, this this is completely wrong, and and we have to try again, right? So really, I'm really happy that that's a creative effort in itself, right? That doesn't require essentially funding. If anything, it comes from the individuals working at Scott Street Flights out of their own volition, yeah, just wanting to help out there. Yeah, I love that because I think it hits on a really pertinent point for this work, no matter what industry or what company you're at, which is always this tension between do we have money for it or not, right? And budgeting and getting budget dollars can be very competitive. Yeah, and I think it's really important to think about it as it's not just one pathway too, right? Because there are a lot of things you can do without money or without funding, but then there are certain things that you can only do really with funding. Obviously, our partnership together is funded <laughs> because <laughs> that's how we survive. I know for a lot of organizations, you know, that's a big step, right? Saying, oh, we actually are going to spend money on this. And then how did you get from that sort of like decision to SGO? 
I feel like specifically at Scott's, the DEI committee did a, a huge like push there, right? Like we got together, we're like, this is needed X, Y, and Z, Y. And we created a budget. And usually that's what business leaders want to see, right? Like how is this going to affect the business and how much of it can we afford? And we want to see the numbers and the data and essentially what the, the effect is going to be from these workshops. So from a hiring perspective, I can definitely talk on like, okay, if we train everybody, everybody's aware of the goal and the and obviously the value for this DEI workshop, like everybody's on the same page, then obviously there's basically not going to be any type of, of, I guess, questioning around like, well, what is this? What is, why am I doing this in the first place? Or is this another training that I have to go through? Like, no, I, I think it, talking about it out loud in the first place is important. And then once we present that data to business leaders, like, Usually they like seeing that. They like seeing the numbers. They like having the data in front of them. And honestly, looking at it like this is going to be an ongoing investment and looking at it too from the future of the company, right? Like we're going to continue hiring amazing people. We're going to continue creating an inclusive environment across the entire company. And then just the different walks of life from the folks that we hire on, like it's, it's going to make a huge effect in how we think, how we collaborate. And then the products that we essentially produce. Here's SGO DEI facilitator Rachel Sadler. Organizations can support their DEI committees or ERGs in several ways. Firstly, by providing committees with resources to do the work. So that could be setting aside a portion of the annual budget for DEI initiatives and training. It could look like allotting time during the workday for the committee to meet at a reasonable cadence. It could be providing a liaison that is part of the leadership team at the company so that the committee's concerns go straight to the decision makers. Support also means trusting the team when they present issues and concerns around DEI and taking meaningful action in a reasonable amount of time. Here's Anna Whitlock, Director of People, Strategy, and Culture at Lab Central. With Lab Central specifically, the organization exists to provide access. And so at a baseline, it is in operating in the realm of inclusion to provide organizations that would otherwise have, you know, really, really high startup costs to be mitigated and operating in a shared economy where a piece of, you know, $500,000 piece of equipment is shared amongst 24 companies. That makes it a lot more accessible. So the existence of the company alone is aligning with them, you know, an integral value. I think the kind of initiatives and various things that the organization has done, like many organizations, is multi-pronged. Some are happening at a really grassroots level. Some are happening at a more organizational level. And I think where I've seen that show up maybe on the grassroots side, as an example, is my colleague Shazia Murr, who her role within the organization is kind of community building, which I think oversimplifies it. But a really beautiful thing that she does is we have artwork up in our space. And so she does this tremendous job of bringing in artists that are of many different backgrounds and many different representations and has those artists come and speak. And we had the first in-person art exhibit, art opening. All of the artists identified as African-American or Black or Caribbean-American and or Haitian-American. And we're talking about how their 
this institution being kind of like tech and Lab Central as an offshoot of that uh, biotech, they never felt like this was a place that they belonged or that they were welcome. They thought this was the place the scientists go and that was where that story ended. And having this opportunity showed them that not only are they welcome here, but they're celebrated here. So that feels you know, pretty grassrootsy because it's one person just doing a part of their job on the other side have been really kind of awe-inspired by the work that the organization, and this was specifically a lot driven by our board as well as team members. So it was from the the bottom up and the, the top down to launch the Ignite program, which has, they've done a great job kind of putting word out there and marketing for that. And it's, they're still evolving kind of what exactly their pronged approach is, but this oversimplification is bringing representation into the realm of STEM. And so some of the ways they're doing that is they have really robust internship programs. And my colleague, Crystal Licata, is, you know, really advocating out there, talking to CEOs of large pharma companies and talking to their talent people and saying, do these folks really need PhDs? What about you bring, you know, this kid in who's 19 and they're really thirsty and teach them on these basic lab operations pieces and then hire them at the end of those three months and see if that works. Bringing them through career forge programs that's entirely supported and subsidized at Lab Central and then actually paying the participants who go through the program, give them fundamental skills. It's not revolutionary. I think there are a lot of organizations doing similar things. Ignite's really trying to kind of catalyze those organizations to come together and not be operating in silos as well. And that is something that you know, our board has dedicated millions of dollars in the budget to make that happen. And it's not something that is necessarily going to bring in money. So there's clearly, it is entirely based in the values of representation and, and inclusion on that side. So just wanted to identify two two distinctly different things that the organization does at different levels that I think have profound impact in different ways. One of the first things that I did when I came was recognize, okay, let's try and put together an interest group, people who care about these topics, who want to talk about them and learn from them. Anyone who's interested, come and we're going to meet every, I think it was, maybe it started every month and then went to every three weeks. And that was made up of a cross section of the organization, including executive leadership. I was a part of that and other folks. And I started off kind of being like, here's this content or here's a discussion point for us to cover but have been, I'm very sensitive to the voice that I have within this work and within the organization itself. For better, for worse, I'm a, I end up being a vocal person because of the work that I do. And so especially within the realm of these, this was a DEIB cohort at the time is what we called it, trying to balance that to say, I'm not leading this. I'm not driving this. I'm a contributor just like everyone else. And unfortunately, that really didn't go, there was no ownership because other people would say, I think we had maybe two volunteers who led content, but it ended up being more of a discussion group. And at times there was feedback that people who identify as a person of color felt like they were being burdened with leading the group and sharing their experiences. And that was not intentional at all. I 
my perspective is that that organically happened on its own and then they they felt bad about it which is totally warranted and so that really fell flat because we're like no action is being taken I was sensitive to being like you know, the director and like the the captain to be like, go, go, go. And so we really had to pull back and reevaluate. And so the next iteration that we landed on was having an application-based system where people had to kind of commit to that. It was seen as being a dedicated amount of time and they had to apply and the applications were reviewed by myself and a consultant at the time, and maybe two other people. And it's a little foggy. We ended up having three applicants for what we had planned to have six spots for. And so basically, we were like, you're all accepted. They're all actually people who are are great for this work anyway. I mean, everyone's great for it in their own way. These folks have shown up consistently for this work at Lab Central. And so they kind of started and I think they felt a little aimless as well and came back to me and they're like, what are we supposed to be doing? And I said, you're building the charter, you're acting as advisees to the organization and to the executive team and the board to say, these are the issues, this is how we think we should solve them, getting their buy-in and then making it happen either as individuals or with support of the rest of the team. I think that they struggled with that a little bit as well because I think they wanted more guidance. And again, it was kind of like, but we want this to be employee-driven and committee-driven. And thank goodness where we have landed now, which I think is the best iteration and continues to evolve, is when we hired the executive director for Ignite, Gretchen, she also is coming to the organization with a wealth of DEIB experience. And so she was, she kind of came on and she was like, this is good. We need executive leadership here, which was a question we'd had because we'd gotten feedback Do you have the executive there to help support it? Or is that crowding the space for people to speak their mind? And someone from people strategy needs to be there, which is me. And so then we took the committee as it existed, had her leadership and had my presence there. And they built a charter. They also are compensated, which I think adds a different weight and perspective on it. And we have right now a monthly meeting and a list of items that some are as easy as let's make sure we have an anonymous question place that people can ask questions about DEIB to much more involved, like we're in the midst of something I'm driving and was already a part of my goals for the year is doing a compensation audit through the lens of not only health of the business and market assessment, but equity promotion, all of those pieces which are important. And so the evolution of that has certainly been a learning for us. And I think the biggest challenge I always have with this work is ping-ponging, like responding to one thing. And so then someone says, this isn't working for me. So then you do it this way and it's not working for someone else. And then you do it this way and trying to figure out that happy medium where you're doing this work in a way that's not upsetting or offending or like aging out of an antiquated practice so that it's working right. And the committee definitely is an example of that that's now played out over the past year and a half or so. But I think we're in a good place, hopefully. Oh, I love that. And I love how open you are about that because I think a lot of companies struggle with exactly the same kind of process that you have gone through. So it's really great to hear that in your own words because it's real, right? You're like, hey, we have a committee. Go forth and do all the things. And they're like, we don't know what we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> and in some senses, everyone's figuring it out as we go along. So really appreciate you, you sharing on that. Here's Alba Lazardi, Site Director at BASF 
followed by Naomi Seddon, author of Milk and Margaritas. So we had a woman, she was actually a lawyer in our London office who had spoken to the CEO about doing more around diversity inclusion. It was just my, at my previous company. And from there came the idea of a diversity and inclusion task force. And when they created this task force, they basically said, okay, we need to go out. And we were a global organization about probably 20,000 people at that point. They said, we need to go out and we need to create this task force full of diversity, right? It, it has to show. So it was diversity from different parts of the world, men, women, different racial, I guess, uh, ethnicities. So really, because how can you create a diversity inclusion task force and not have it be diverse? So that was initially how I got involved. So I was lucky enough that that my boss reached out to me and said, hey, we have to you know, nominate someone from our business and we think you're the right person. And it's quite interesting because I sit there sometimes and wonder, how did I get chosen? Obviously, I'm a woman. Um, what a lot of people don't know is I'm actually originally from Puerto Rico. So I am Latina. I'm a mom. I'm a wife, you know, <laughs> but I don't know that I was outwardly doing something outside of I've always been very supportive of women and trying to advocate for women, right? Because that's who I am and I'm in a male dominated world. So outside of that, I wasn't sure that I was constantly being very loud around diversity and inclusion prior to that. I was very much, I would say, female focused, I would say in that arena. So when I got, you know, called on to do that, you know, I joined this task force and it really was, I think about, you know, 10 of us again, from completely different businesses, part of the world. And it really was, we just started to working as a team. What does diversity inclusion mean, right? And that's where I actually met the lead of diversity inclusion for BSF, because that was when we started reaching out. We did say, let's reach out to our customers. Let's reach out to our competitors. Let's reach out to our suppliers, because we were aware of certain companies that were doing this, I would argue, the right way. And so how did we learn from those customers, suppliers, et cetera, to emulate what they were doing, right? And employee resource groups, I would say, was that first thing that we were focused on. You know, we need to have employee resource groups. One of the things that we've done at Megaport, one of the organizations that I'm on the board of, is we've really very heavily invested in this area because we genuinely care about affecting change and better supporting our employees. And so we have developed a DNI advisory board and we are going to be recruiting members of the public who might not otherwise get board opportunities and also pulling some you know, board members from within the organization as well. But one of the things we really wanted to do is hear about the lived experiences of other people who might be dealing with some of the challenges that, you know, we simply don't have ourselves. I mean, employees that might be blind in the workplace, employees that might be disabled, um, physically disabled. These are experiences I don't personally have. And so, we want to hear from other people within the community around what their experiences are within the workplace and how we can find better ways to support them. Because ultimately, I think one of the things that most organizations do is we kind of listen to everybody within the workplace. But if we want to find ways to improve diversity within the organization, we actually need to be listening to people outside of the organization with different backgrounds, different cultures and different lived experiences. And I think that that's the area where I really believe more organizations need to start investing time and resources. Here's CA Webb again to take us home. You can't drive change alone. You can't have one employee who is a true believer and expect them to carry this work. I mean, I think it's a flaw even in the way we staff 
diversity, equity, and inclusion officers. You know, often a company will hire one person and then the work gets, you know, shunted over to them and they're often drowning. If the C-suite is really committed, that person also sits in the C-suite and is given many resources and that work gets diversified, you know, gets dispersed across the company. And it becomes something that ultimately every manager and every employee is expected to live up to, but no one person can do this work. So I think, you know, first diversity, equity, inclusion work has to happen in community. I think if you are really being an entrepreneurial change maker in your organization, it's essential that you have you know, an inner circle of folks, probably ideally some internal, some external, who you can confide in and can get support from because you're going to get pushback. You're going to have naysayers and you're going to have days when you want to throw in the towel and you need people who are going to remind you of what you originally said and what you, you know, they're going to hold up the mirror for you and help you help you remember yourself and, and help you keep going. Thanks so much for listening. Please don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe. It makes a huge difference in the reach of this podcast and by extension, this work. Make sure to tune in next week when we talk about building inclusive cultures. If you're looking to further your own knowledge and gain support alongside other incredible people, join our free community. You'll get a welcoming built-in support system grounded in the values of diversity, equity, and inclusion. You'll have access to bonus episodes, additional resources, courses, webinars, coaching, and more. Check it out at shegeeksout.com slash community. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Vienna DiGiacomo, hosted by Felicia Jadzak, me, and Rachel Murray. The guests featured in this episode were Ginny Chang, Reem Papagiorgi, Elba Lazardi, Amaya Arobrona, C.A. Webb, Jason Fuchs, and Karina Becerra. Our facilitators were Rachel Sadler and Kaya Rivera.